Welcome back to Game of Our Lives. I'm David Goldblatt, and I don't know about you, but I don't know what day of the week it is. I am completely exhausted. I'm emotionally ragged. This World Cup has given us everything we could possibly ask for on the pitch. And with me to process the madness of this week is once again Al Jazeera's Tony Karen and our producer Roger Shah. Gentlemen, are you guys surviving the marathon? Well, it's, as you say, emotionally pretty exhausting, David. Still standing. <laughs> I find at the risk of being irredeemably analogue, I'm reminded of those grey old black and white Hollywood movies in which the camera focuses on a paper desk calendar and the pages fly off it increasingly and whir through the air and that's how it feels as every game passes by and flies into this kind of great confusion of paper and meaning around my head talking of which tony out of this whirl of games what has stood out for you this weekend in the round of 16 well, you know, the operatic dimension is always served by Maradona. You talk about old black and white footage. I'm reminded of James Brown concerts where, you know, he would literally die on stage, be carried off and be brought back on, <laughs> resurrected. Oh, if only a Diego could dance like James Brown, then we'd really be doing something good. Exactly. But, you know, seeing Argentina put out of their misery was was fantastic. I mean, I think it would have been a travesty had had Argentina managed to scrape through that one. Yeah, they do have a way of, you know, being really bad. And yet for all that, they scored three goals in that game. I mean, it was like, how did that happen? They they did. And, you know, I think France took the their foot off the gas a little towards them, but I don't think there was ever any doubt as to which where that game was going. You know, I think the hype of the World Cup of like, it's Messi versus Neymar versus Cristiano Ronaldo. We know this is not a game of that, of, that individuals can transform on their own in the main. An individual in the moment, absolutely. But on the whole, this is a team game and it's about who they've got around them. It's about Messi looking up and he can't see Iniesta. He can't see Suarez because he's not playing for Barcelona and this Argentina team just doesn't cut it. I thought it was extraordinary looking at the stats on how little he's actually run. He's constantly, you know, just pacing around a tiny area, running a couple of kilometres and just waiting for the ball that never, never, never comes. Except, what? Well, okay, we have to ask the Jorge Valdano question as well. I'm sure you saw that great op-ed he did in The Guardian a couple of days ago where he's really questioning the, the obsession with statistics of how many yards a player ran. It's like, well, were those runs any use? How many touches a player had? He kind of notes Mascherano had the most touches but who did he pass the ball to because the centre-backs had the next most touches which meant that's what he was doing with the ball. What about France Tony I mean you say Argentina don't look like a team so did France look like a team? They look more like a team I mean particularly N'Golo Kante and Paul Pogba at the centre of that midfield finally came good and did what they're there to do which is take charge control the game prevent the other team from playing and then you had the marvellous Kylian Mbappe and oh man wasn't he good he was amazing and you could see from the first run that gut busting run where he wins the penalty it's like this guy is unplayable today now we have to caution the media that is looking for the next Messi that's looking for the next Ronaldo like Don't go there with Mbappe. Mbappe is brilliant. But that said, it's a team game. We would not have seen that of Mbappe if Pogba wasn't on his game, if Kante wasn't on his game. 
Do you think the same logic applies to the Uruguay-Portugal clash? I mean, the great thing about Uruguay watching them is they play like a club team when they attack, i.e. a team of players who've played together for years. They know one another's runs. That opening goal where, you know, that series exchange of passes from Betancourt to Suarez and Suarez diagonal across to... um, Cavani. Edinson Cavani at the far post, the most brilliant piece of athleticism. That's what you see in a club team. People who know each other's runs, they can anticipate. And from the centre-backs to the twin strikers to a really solid midfield, Betancourt was amazing. That's a team and they could go a lot, a lot further. We got a lot of nice open play in both of those games, but when it comes to gut-wrenching narrative, unjust twists and turns and just sheer entertainment... You really can't beat extra time and a penalty shootout. And we've had two of those so far. Croatia, Denmark, Russia, Spain. Which was the penalty shootout that had you behind the sofa, Tony? (laughs) Basically, the penalty shootout is a more elaborate form of a coin toss. It's a more interesting visual spectacle than a coin (laughs) toss. But that's really what it is. Well, are you saying that, you know, skill is no determinant of who wins? No, it's skill. That no, that, or that holding your nerve, for want of a better football cliche, is not part of what determines who wins this penalty shootout. No, is it I mean, really of just it, a crapshoot. No, it's it's it, well, it's kind of a crapshoot because it depends on a number of factors. It's choices made by goalkeepers, choices made by players. It's a contest, no question. It's not foreordained. It's a real contest. But it's kind of like in basketball, if you settle a game by basically a series of free throws, that's not the same as measuring the, the balance of the two teams. It's a different contest. Yeah, man, but a free throw, there's no one standing in front of you. Yeah, you can't exactly. compare a free throw with a penalty, man. I mean, a free throw, you haven't got Kasper Schmeichel screaming in your face, yeah. jumping up and down when you take it. I've no question, it's more, it's far more entertaining <laughs> than a free throw competition, and it's far more entertaining than a coin toss. But at the end of the day, all bets are off when it goes to penalties. The relative strength of the two teams means absolutely nothing, which is what you saw with Russia. I mean, Russia was really poor compared to Spain, but, you know, fair play to them. They dug it out. I mean, this game should have been done in Volgograd because it really was like Stalingrad you know it's like basically hanging on doggedly and being the last team standing everybody went with Volgograd you know I'm I'm thinking there's too much carnage at Volgograd and then you've got the battle of Kursk afterwards I'm thinking this is more the siege of Leningrad right three years without the explosive breakout afterwards I think we need a little bit of more second world war scholars to come in here and say what is the appropriate Soviet siege in which to compare this Tony you say though Russia weren't that good I mean they were great defensively was Spain that good no this is we've reached peak tiki-taka rubbish right absolutely I mean 1096 passes in search of a goal mouth I mean, rarely have I seen so much possession so pointlessly and unimaginatively squandered. And you have to say in the face of that, weren't the Russians just really smart and unbelievably disciplined and just like on point? It sort of almost remind me, wash my mouth out with soap, of watching a kind of Jose Mourinho super well-drilled defence that's prepared to concede two-thirds of the field and say, right get past this wall and ugly as it was and you know I was not enjoying it was bringing me pain you have to take your hat off and say 
pretty good stuff. Absolutely. You play within the limits of the players you have, and they did an absolutely brilliant job in containing Spain. I mean, it was a great defensive display, no question. For Spain, the existential crisis posed by going backwards, because remember, Del Bosque's game was progressive possession. There's a point to possession. There's a point to the passes. You're changing the geometry of the opposing defenses in order to create spaces to pass through. And this just wasn't. And you felt really bad. You looked at Coque and... and um, Busquets and all the guys in the middle are struggling and then you think hey you've got Diego Costa horrible ugly mean Diego Costa why don't you boot some balls up to him in the box and see what happens I mean it worked well enough against Portugal like I thought why are you taking this dude off you've got to do something different you don't have any other mean bearded characters from frankly straight out of central casting let's talk about that for a moment though because this tiki taka game has kind of produced these midfield artists but they're not producing a lot of top draw strikers anymore more in that Spanish national setup, which has to be a worry. But I want to change the subject for a minute to something that's kind of annoying me about this World Cup, which is that everybody is just too bloody well behaved. That it's really, where are the handbags? I mean, where is the moment where the punches are being thrown or about to be thrown? Where is Diego Costa doing his burlesque, his carnival bad guy stuff, making a defender's life miserable? It's like none of that. It's all squeaky clean. Didn't, didn't we have a touch of that in Panama, England and Tunisia, England? I mean, Panama certainly for the first half, played pretty mean. I mean, not Diego Costa mean, but pretty mean. I also wonder whether the referee, you know, there's a sense that the assistance and the VAR is making people think twice. It must be, because in that Panama game, and maybe this is again my Liverpool bias coming out, but Steven Gerrard, big and odd on the field would not stand for that he would pick one of those Panama players and he would let him know with a very physical telegram that that is not on and that he's going to protect his players yeah no I don't see those kinds of uh, NHL style enforcers around in this World Cup and we mourn their passing we do Roger what's been happening in your World Cup life uh, well, I mean, people haven't been particularly well-behaved around here as well. I've been watching all the games at the office, and um, I will say ever since our last episode, people have just been yelling the word dude at me in their best David Goldblatt impression, so <laughs> congratulations on that. At least they're not singing Lights of Manelli to you. Uh, so anyway, I hope you're happy. <laughs> the one nailed-on, undisputed winner of this World Cup is surely... President Vladimir Putin. Man, he must be rubbing his hands with glee as the whole world becomes increasingly obsessed with this tournament, unable to concentrate on anything else. However, here at Game of Our Lives, obsessed as we are, we are going to keep concentrating on what's happening off the pitch as well as what's happening on it. One of the biggest issues before this World Cup is what would be the experience of Russia for people of colour and LGBT fans. Russia has been a pretty uncomfortable place for both groups. Racism has been widespread in Russian football and LGBT people have been systematically discriminated against. In recent years, Russia has even passed the law banning gay propaganda, as they call it, to minors. And there is no doubt that there's been an increase in hate crimes against the LGBT community in Russia since then. There's perhaps no one better to talk about all of this than our guest today, Piara Power. He's the executive director of FAR, a group that is fighting racism and discrimination in global football. 
At the 2018 World Cup, they created diversity houses. These are meant to provide safe spaces and educational workshops that celebrate diversity in football. I caught up with Piara on Skype last week to hear the latest. Piara, you're in London right now, but you're just back from Russia and some time at the 2018 World Cup. Just tell me, on the street, how does the World Cup feel to you? Well, David, it feels uh, feels very good, actually. Uh, there's a lot of people out in the streets, a lot of people congregating in ways in which you never see in Russia in normal times. So you've been to Russia before. This is obviously not your first time. How does the feeling of public space and the way the police and the authorities shape that, how is it different? Well, one of the things that we've noticed is that the state is has stepped out of the way, seemingly. You have a sense of a World Cup taking place, an international event. This is not the normal Moscow that I'm used to seeing. You know, the streets are more crowded, they're more colourful, more diverse, of course. But the police and the authorities are just letting things get on. You just roll along. And, you know, we, we keep being told by Russians that this is a special period, and it certainly feels that way. And do you get big public viewing areas in Moscow? Because back in 2008, certainly when they did fantastically at the Euros, that was the last moment that Russia exploded around its football team. I wonder, are they allowing that as they did in 2008? Yeah, that, that's happening. The biggest fan fest is over by Moscow State University. It's quite big. In Moscow, it's been incredible, the, the sort of spontaneous outpouring. My colleagues around Russia say there are similar things happening, but perhaps not to the same extent. But also then you consider, you know, that some of the cities that are playing host were also closed cities under Soviet regime. So they're very unused to visitors historically. I mean, who knows? This could be some kind of awakening for the people that, uh, I don't know where it will go, but it, it certainly is a very interesting dynamic that we're watching quite carefully. Can you tell us a little bit about the diversity houses and what you've been getting up to in those? We have two spaces in St. Petersburg and Moscow. And the idea here is that we celebrate diversity in football, create a safe space for minorities and the LGBT community. And, and we've tried to cover topics that are familiar to audiences in Western Europe, you know, so the diversity of players, women's football and so on. But we've also gone places where I think the Russians will feel uncomfortable, which is to celebrate the LGBT community in football, such as it is. And we also then looked at LGBT sport in Russia, which definitely not what you know, most Russians want to hear about. Uh, and yes, we've, you know, we've, we haven't had any adverse reactions. We haven't had any provocations, as the Russians like to put it. The houses haven't come under physical attack. The St. Petersburg house was closed down in the sense that the landlord withdrew his permission for it to exist the night before opening. Forgive me, Piara, that's a pretty standard move in my experience by the Russian authorities is the press landlords. I'm really interested to hear how that conversation went on the phone. Well, uh, it was a conversation with our local coordinators who were told suddenly that, no, this space doesn't exist for you. So we then held tight for a while, you know, tried to sort of work out the best way forward here. The guys locally in St. Petersburg found a new space, so we knew we had another option. And then we got FIFA involved. FIFA made some inquiries. And, and when we realized actually that the new location was safe, we opened up again two or three days after. 
So it, it meant a delay of two or three days. It was an interesting shot across our bowels, I would say, a reminder of what we're dealing with beneath all of the surface cloths. Interesting to hear that FIFA responded so positively and by the sounds of it quite quickly. I sense in this sort of micro zone, they actually have a little bit of leverage over the uh, Russian authorities. Yes, well, listen, I, I would say that FIFA have a lot of leverage. It's a question of how they use that leverage. You know, and these are some of the questions that we're asking about Qatar and what they'll do there, particularly in terms of LGBT laws. What questions are you asking about Qatar 2022? Well, our, of course, there's lots of questions here about migrant labour, the kafala system. And that, in many ways, FIFA is clear that they've addressed, certainly for the building of infrastructure that they're responsible for. The train stations, hotels and, and so on is another question. You know, and, and so we're quite clear that there's still abuses going on in those spaces. But for us, the big issue is the fact that Qatar bans homosexuality. You can be sent to prison for three months or more for if you're caught in a homosexual act. Now, for us, FIFA should be saying to the Qatari authorities, we are bringing a huge entity to your country. It is going to benefit you, is benefiting you already in terms of brand building your country. We want you to defer those laws for at least the period of the tournament. And the Qataris, there's no question they would do it. They need FIFA more than FIFA needs them at the moment. And who knows, you know, maybe they would continue or there'll be any reframing of their laws. But that's the sort of leverage we think FIFA has and should be using. There's a balance here, isn't it? There are some really serious problems still in the world and in the world of football in particular. But there is something about shining a bit of global attention. What's the balance of positives and negatives for you at the moment from the World Cup? Well, at the moment, the, the positives outweigh the negatives because we've been able to use this tournament to address some of the really difficult issues that Russian football faces, particularly around far-right fans, some of the racism that's endemic in Russian football, the levels of nationalism. This whole sort of idea of the role that the far right plays in Russia, their relationship to the president and ruling cliques in the Kremlin. It's been interesting having a relationship with Russia in the last sort of six or seven years because it's changed a lot. You know, we've gone from a Russia that was engaging with the Western world in the Obama reset relations stage to a Russia which is now incredibly nationalistic, is developing its own perspective on the world, which is backed up in places like Syria with military action. It's being very clear with its allies as to the action that it wants to see them taking in support of Russia. So it's a very, very different place, a very difficult place to operate if you are of a progressive mindset and you are Russian. But, you know, all of that, I think, in the end, I, I would say it's positive. It's allowed us to, we hope, change some things, to create some legacies, uh, and then also to see what follows afterwards. You know, we know these big mega sporting events don't always leave positive things. Let's see where this is in five or six years' time. I'm just going to add on a personal note, as someone who reads your reports on a regular basis, the work I think that FAR has done on racism 
and uh, anti-Semitism and ultranationalism in Russian football has been extraordinary. And a shout out to all the very brave FAR observers who have gone to these games and put themselves in really, really difficult situations with very difficult people to report the truth. So, Piara Powell, thank you very much for joining us. Good luck with your return to Russia. I hope to have you on the show again. Cheers, David. Always a pleasure. You can find out more about FAR at farnet.org. That's F-A-R-E-N-E-T dot org. There's a lot of useful information out there, including how to report instances of abuse and discrimination in football. We'll be keeping an eye on how open Russia remains, not just for the rest of the World Cup, but also afterwards, when all the TV crews have packed up. But for now, the TV crews remain, and there is still television to watch. What what to to watch? Watch. What 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 to watch? All right, so today's what to watch is a little unusual. We've still got some round of 16 games to play, but we also know some of the quarterfinal matchups. So, let's get right to it. David, what are you especially excited to look out for over these next few days? Well, I'm obviously really excited about the England game, but I am not going to put the bock on it, as we say in Yiddish. I'm going to stay stum and say nothing and move smartly onto the prospect of Russia versus Croatia. Is Vlad's going to finally show up? We know he was there for Russia versus Saudi Arabia and watched a lot of Russian goals and the Saudis got a good kicking. But in the round of 16, you know, which nobody expect them to make, where is he? Where is Putin? Now they're in the quarterfinals. Can he resist? Dare he be there knowing what the meaning of defeat might be? I'm really interested to see who from the Russian state is going to show up at that game. What about on the pitch, Tony? What do you actually fancy football-wise? The the game I'm looking at football-wise is very much France and Uruguay. Two teams that have started getting going, that are finding their rhythm, they're finding, you know, they're, they're starting to play to expectation. And you could see either of those teams going all the way to the final. The whole world should be sweating on the fitness of Edinson Cavani. If he's going to be fit, the Suarez Cavani Betancourt triangle is very, very dangerous. That said, France's defense is very, very strong. You'd back France to edge this. But Uruguay are the great scrapper. I mean, they really are this team that really defies expectations. So I'll just say that as we're recording this, there's yet another fantastic game unfolding. Uh, Belgium has just pulled even with Japan in the second half. And actually, it reminds me of something that I've been meaning to ask you guys. Ever since Tony said a few days ago that Argentina-France was the best game of the tournament so far, which is what are your picks for best World Cup games, period? Not just at this tournament, but your all-time favorites. Okay, I'll start and give you a little moment to think about it, Tiny Karen. I'm going to go rather bizarrely with Argentina-England 1998 round of 16, famous for Diego Simeone brilliantly winding up David Beckham, who then flicks out with his boot and virtually just grazes Simeone's ankle, gets himself sent off. And I choose it because it is just riveting, riveting. You know, you could not take your eyes off it. It was one of those games that just somehow, after about 40 minutes, I could just see everything that was going on because I was so inside it. And the narrative 
turn of it and the tension of it was so fabulously great. Excuse me. Wait, wait, wait. How do you talk about that game and not talk about the 17-year-old Michael Owen <laughs> lighting his name on the world stage with that absolutely brilliant goal? Do I sense a certain amount of Liverpool solipsism on your part, Mr. Carroll? Unapologetically <laughs> so. Tony, what about you? Well, okay. I could choose a game I never saw, except on YouTube. 1962, Chile, Italy, the Battle of Santiago, where the the police have to come onto the field four times to stop fighting. So, okay. I'm not really being serious, although that was that was a fun. No, spectacle. we'd all, you know, the blandness of the modern spectacle. It would be nice occasionally, as you say, for people to be slightly more badly behaved. I, so my probably my favourite game, if I'm thinking back, and and this was really a heartbreaking game, the 1982 quarterfinal between Italy and Brazil, where you have this absolutely marvellous Brazilian team playing the most brilliant gorgeous attacking football not really ever worrying when they concede because they always know they're going to score three more than their opponent and they come up against an Italian team that really embodies the virtues of Catenaccio an Italian game that's all about locking things down and occasionally making a break the Italians go ahead Brazil equalizes with one of my favorite ever goals. I mean, Socrates on the blind side of the Italian defense, he squeezes the ball inside the near post of Dino Zoff. It's the most, one of my favorite ever goals. And, you know, once again, Italy go ahead in an act of complete naivety by this Brazilian team that thinks nothing of passing a ball square across its defense. And, you know, sure enough, Paolo Rossi says, thank you very much. And he puts it away and Italy wins that game. And it's almost like it's the end of flair minus steel. And on that note, I think it's time to wrap up. We don't know what awaits us, but I'm pretty damn sure it's going to be good. So hang in there. Keep focused. We've got about a week and a half to go. This show is a production of Al Jazeera's Jetty Studios, recorded at the Soundtown Studios in Bristol, UK, with music from Bang Data. Subscribe to the show if you haven't already, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like it, please leave us a review. Let the people know. Follow us on Twitter, at Game of Our Lives. And the final duty of the show, as ever, remains to just say, thank you very much, Tony Karen. Tell no lies, claim no easy victories. <laughs> and thank you very much, Roger Shah. Thanks, David. I'm David Goldblatt, and we'll see you on Friday. Well, then you need to say that, Roger. I think you just did. I think I just did. Um, <laughs> were you recording on your end? Um, I got a couple of pickups from it. Maybe you could do it again. More energy. <laughs> <laughs>